Happy Father's Day. If you weren't here this morning to listen to Dan Dehart speak about his father and his role in his life, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if we recorded that, but absolutely fantastic sharing about what it means to be a godly father. Okay, so we are in Micah chapter 3. Micah chapter 3. I really, really want to go get three chapters tonight. Andrew, do you think we can do it? Yes, we can. All right. Okay, so we're going to do this. Let's pray before we begin. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you so much, Lord, that we can begin and end the day, Lord, opening your word. And Lord, just this book, one of the chapters we'll be in, one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible, I just pray that 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 and everything else we read, Lord, it would just settle in to our hearts and change us, mold us. Lord, I'm, I do pray all this in Jesus' name. Okay, Micah, again, he was a prophet who came from the southwest, southwest of, uh, of Jerusalem. If you think of the prophets uh, and the chart, that I'm actually not going to show that chart tonight, but the, the, the charts of Jerusalem, there was prophets to the south, there was prophets to the north, uh, by the time Micah comes around, there, the Israel had been split in two with Judah and Benjamin in the south. Micah is a prophet from the south. And uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah. Isaiah was the city guy. He was from a rural area. And we ended last week in verse 13 of chapter 2. Uh, the first two chapters, pretty much hardcore prophecy against the northern kingdom in Israel and also the southern kingdom. He was a prophet who lived in the south who went to both places. Most of the prophets either were prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel or to the southern kingdom. He was both. And so he uh, is... Uh, really coming to them and warning them. A hundred years earlier, Jonah prophesied to Nineveh, and Nineveh turned to the Lord. But um, Nineveh uh, also, uh, this is a hundred years later, Nineveh actually turn back to their former condition, so he, he also spends some time uh, prophesying against them as well. But, but um, in verse 13 of chapter 2, it says, the one who breaks open will come up before them, and they will break out and they will pass through the gate and go out by it. 
their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. Now, as we have discussed many times, one of the challenges of not only reading but teaching through the, the, the prophets, I would say none more than Isaiah, but also his contemporary Micah, is they go from present to distant future to near future to medium-term future, and there's no warning. They just do it. In these two verses at the end of chapter 2, it's at the very end of two chapters of prophesying about the present, warning Israel, warning northern Israel, warning Judah. You cannot continue to imitate the behavior and the worship of the peoples around you, of other nations, or you will be judged you are a unique people. We were in First Peter uh, this morning where the people of God are called a peculiar people, pilgrims. Not those guys who, you know, with the funny-looking outfits who, who had Thanksgiving with the Indians, but, uh, uh, but the, actually they too were, were, they considered themselves uh, pilgrims in the sense that they're temporary residents separate from other people. Actually, one of the translations is foreigners, and he's telling them you can't, uh, they're foreigners in the sense that they, if you take a look at their lives, uh, there, there's, a, there's a conduct but also a glow about their lives that distinguishes them from the, um, from the world. Uh, by this time in Micah, the glow had been turned off and he is telling them, look, the Assyrians are coming and they're going to wipe you out. And then all of a sudden, in verse 12 and 13, he shoots 3,000 years into the future. And he's talking about uh, Jesus' return there. No introduction, no warning, you know, he just does it. But one of, he calls in verse 13, he says, the one who breaks open. The King James says, calls it the breaker. The breaker will come, breaker with a capital B, and he'll break through the gate. Now, any excuse I can get to turn to 2 Samuel Samuel 5, verse 20, I do. So that's what I want you to do right now. I want you to go to 2 Samuel 5, verse 20, and I just, this is one of those um, names of God that we don't hear a lot about. God's called Jehovah Ra the Lord our shepherd. He's called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. He's called um, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 20, it says David, this is right after he became king in, uh, in Judah, actually. Saul had died. He had become king. The Philistines came against him. And he says, David went to Baal-perazim and defeated them, the Philistines there, and he said, the Lord has broken. Same word as in Micah 2.13. Through my enemies before me, and then I love this, like a breakthrough of water. And therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. Now we here to look at the word Baal and we think of Ooh, that's like a pagan thing. Well, no, it, really, it's, it's just a word. It means master. And what this means, Baal Perizim, means master of breakthroughs. That's the name of God. You can type that out, 
cut it off and put it over your doorpost. It's good to know that God is a master of breakthroughs. Because you know something? From time to time, I need a breakthrough. (laughs) And just as important, in the area of intercession, people we intercede for and pray for, man, nothing's going to work. There's a stronghold there. I learned uh, the Creole word for stronghold is, is fortress. There's a, there's a fortress there in their lives that only the master of breakthroughs is going to get at. And I love that. So I did it. I, I brought you to 2 Samuel 5.20. And we will now begin with chapter 3 where he zooms right back to the present. Right back to the present. Warning the people. That trouble is coming, and oh, did it. He was a, we'll see here that all of this, uh, much of this uh, is fulfilled in the near term, within years of him making it, which is in a matter of years. The Assyrians, in Isaiah's lifetime, and probably Micah's as well, unclear exactly when he died, the Assyrians overran the land completely up north. He's saying, Here now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not you for you is it not for you to know justice you who hate good and love evil who strip the skin from my people and the and the flesh from their bones now here he is probably referring to just the fact that the rich were just robbing from the poor to the point where they're robbing their flesh from their bones who also eat the flesh of my people Flay their skin from among them, break their bones, chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord. He's speaking to, 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 the, to the people who are doing these things, these evil things, and basically raping and pillaging the poor, the oppressed of their, of their country. He says, the, they, meaning the oppressors, will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray. God help the pastor, the prophet on judgment day who spent time saying peace, peace. No, everything's really cool when really they were supposed to say the opposite. They were supposed to be saying repent, repent instead of peace, peace who make the people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth. Now, I understand that the particular Hebrew words there normally associated with serpents, so he's really letting them have it. There's a bunch of serpents. They were snakes. They, were, they had the title of, uh, of prophet, but they were snakes. Who prepare war against them, who put nothing into their mouths, therefore, you shall have night without visions. You shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark for them. There's never any shortage of people who, who, who are ministers, pastors, who will be just coming up with a message that um, 
just tingles the ears of the hearers. I, you know, I, Guillermo just wrote me uh, an email last night about the witnessing team. They spoke to a, to a couple on Jamaica Pond, and um, w- there was a, one of the couple, a man and a woman. The woman uh, was a, a minister. She was a pastor, and, and they, they started sharing the gospel with her, and she just completely evaded everything they were saying and w- walked away and turned around and said something like, you know, you guys should use love and not fear. All they were doing was presenting the gospel. But the problem is, 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 is so. It, 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 the, the problem is, is that there's a message of a message is not a message of love if it completely ignores the judgment of God, as well as the tender mercies of God. That's not loving. Uh, and so never a shortage of that. This is nothing new here. Uh, Micah living here about 750 years before Christ, 2,750 years ago about. Verse 7 says, So the seers shall be ashamed and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. Then I love this. I love this in verse 8. He's speaking of himself. And he says, but truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, here's a guy who is an extreme minority, and God is just filling him with his spirit. Now, there are times when I feel powerless, i got to tell you. I mean, I just feel like, you know, Living in the land of the shadow, you know, of death, this type of thing, walking through it, and and I feel so alone. Declaring the gospel, I'm so thankful to 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 read this witness here, that, and, which is really true, and it's a promise that that um, that Micah embraced, but it's a promise for me, it's a promise for you, that we can be fill, filled with the power by the Spirit of the Lord. Chuck Smith, who passed away a few months ago, one of his big things that he tells Calvary Chapel pastors that he repeated constantly for 30 years is that he says, I don't believe in pastor burnout. It's a hard message, but I'm 100% on board with it. That if you're broken before the Lord, He'll feel you. And it really is true. And you will be able to go right in the midst of enemies, right into the devil's backyard. And he'll fill you with power. But you got to go back to him every morning, <laughs> every day. You can't live on yesterday's manna. Yesterday's power ain't going to happen. God wants a day-by-day relationship with you. But I love this. I love this. I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. By the way, that's said in complete humility here. I'm, gl- I'm glad he didn't get hyper-spiritual say, well, I can't say that. People think I'm proud. No, I'm glad he said this. And of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay. 
I'm just doing it for pay. You know, I, it was hard for me but the first eight years that our church um, was here. I, I had a job and I didn't take any pay. And it, there, was a, there is a wonderful freedom in that. And I love the fact that so many people put in so many hours every week at our church with no pay. They, they, they do things that, you know, in other places and uh, larger churches and stuff, staff does, paid staff. And there's, it's necessary. You've got to start paying your staff as, as a church grows. So there's absolutely no criticism whatsoever. But there's a wonderful freedom and it's a wonderful witness when the body of Christ just serves the Lord for, for no compensation. I remember, some of you have heard me say this, but years ago reading a Nazarene rule book. They actually have a rule book. And one of the things they address in there to churches is you need to be very careful how many people you pay. Because remember, we're doing this for the Lord. I like that. The priests here, they were just teaching for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. There would be harm really, really soon. The Assyrians were coming. Verse 12, therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Now, verse 12 is like a Nineveh-like, a Jonah-like prophecy. Because what happened to Jerusalem at the time of Micah, they came right up, the Assyrians overran everywhere in Judah, and they surrounded Jerusalem, and they repented. Jerusalem repented. And this prophecy here did not happen for a hundred years. Now, Isaiah sh- shows up on the scene about 70 years after this, and he starts it up again. Jerusalem's going to become a heap of ruins for 40 years. He warned them. Jeremiah did. And uh, if you remember, I, I, I mentioned this last week. I love this stuff. In Jeremiah, they quote, the people of the land quote Micah when they were about to kill, when some of the priests, the religious leaders, wanted to kill Jeremiah, a bunch of the people showed up and said, hey, wait, they wanted to kill him because he said Jerusalem's going to become a heap of, uh, of ruins, and uh, they wanted, the religious leaders wanted to kill him for that, and some of the people came and said, no, wait a second, didn't Micah say the same thing? We never killed him. I think that's, is that Jeremiah 26? I can't remember which chapter that was, but uh, yeah, Jeremiah 26. And so, uh, Chapter 4, another change of direction here. And this is tough. He goes, zoom, all the way up to the millennial reign. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, these are, these are some, wow, these are some heavy verses here. If you're a prophet person, a prophecy guy or gal, and I hope you are, you'll like these verses. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. That's an interesting verse. 
and shall be exalted above the hills. So somehow the, 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 the temple is going to go to a, a higher place. What's this about? And people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and, he, uh, and we shall walk in his paths. So right after saying Jerusalem is going to become a heap of ruins, he gives this incredibly wonderful prophecy of what's going to happen after the return of, of Christ. End of chapter 2, for out of Zion the law shall go forth. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. This is speaking about Jesus, who, when he's installed as king in Jerusalem, he will rebu- rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their, sh- their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. No one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Hey, Dave, can, we, can you put a, show us what a pruning hook looks like? I have a picture of a pruning hook. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I did that. That's my fault. I shut that up. Shut that out. Look at this. I bet you didn't know what a pruning hook looked like. Well, now you do. This is what a pruning hook looks like. And um, won't it be wonderful when people aren't bludgeoning themselves to death in war? Just in the last couple of weeks, my future, uh, what, what do you call it, brother-in-law? What, what are you, future? What, what is that called? Future in-law. But isn't there a specific name? No? Oh. Nephew-in-law? Is that, I don't know. But my future in-laws here, they're missionaries to Iraq. And it's just after all the bloodshed. You know, to have this starting up again in the last couple of weeks in Iraq. It's just happening. And it's just, it's, it's just such a horrible tragedy. And what a wonderful picture that the swords will be beaten into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks. Pruning hooks, of course, used to prune uh, the branches of trees and bushes and, and, and this type of thing, vineyards. Now, really interesting, I think. I hope it'll interest you. You don't have to, uh, to uh, turn there, but Isaiah chapter 2, remember, he is the contemporary of Micah. Chapter 2, verse 2 says this. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and, and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord of Jerusalem. He shall judge the, uh, between the peoples, rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pronouns. Almost exactly, word for word. Now, critics of the Bible will look in there and go, yeah, one guy just copied, you know, from the other guy. The Bible says 
the Holy Spirit says the same thing to everybody. So I don't struggle at all with the fact that the Holy Spirit, Peter said, or Peter right now, one of the things that Peter says, the Apostle Peter, the prophets wrote is they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was saying the same wonderful message that God is going, Jesus is going to return. He's the Prince of Peace. And he's going to return. And there will be peace. He shall, verse 3 says, he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. In other words, United States, China, Russia, there will still be nations. But they will not contest his reign. They will not contest his reign. You know, I, I find it not a little disturbing, <laughs> these kind of things, that the United Nations has a huge placard or whatever in front of it. And on the placard it says this, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that at first sounds encouraging. Wow, the United Nations put that up. The problem is, they left out the first part of the verse. He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong. They left out the one way there really is going to be peace. And I don't want to just sort of be bashing on, on the United Nations. There are many good things that the United Nations does. There really is. But um, there's going to be war until Jesus returns. It's just part of the thing with, you, with original sin. That does not mean that we don't try to be peacemakers. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. That includes peace between nations. Verse 4 says, uh, again, everyone shall sit under a vine and his fig tree, actually in the reign of Solomon. Does everyone in Israel, there was prosperity. In the time of Solomon, silver was counted like rocks, it says there in First Kings. And it says at the same time, it says that, that every man sat under his, his vine and under his fig tree. So that's a, a Hebraism for prosperity. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For all the people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcasts. And those whom I have afflicted, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, that tower, that word should be capitalized, speaking of Jesus here, the stronghold, that word also should be capitalized, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Verse 9. Okay, zoom back. It's like Back to the Future. What's that rapture movie? Time Changers? It's like the book of Micah and the 
Micah and, and Isaiah, where you zoom back from the time of Jesus' return in the millennial. Right? Can we just show the, the timeline for just it, 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 it? So he's zooming here when he speaks. So in verses, um, uh, verse 1 through verse 8, he's speaking right in this, this time right here. We're right here in the present r- church age. Rapture happens here. There's a seven-year uh, tri- uh, tribulation period. This is the beginning of sorrows. Here's where it gets really bad. Jesus returns right here. He's speaking in the millennial reign. Now he zooms back to prior to the present church age um, to when Jerusalem would be invaded. So this isn't easy. Micah, why do you do this to us? teacher guys. Verse 12 of chapter 3, he's talking about Jerusalem becoming a heap of ruins. Then there's this parenthetical, and then he goes right back into it. But he doesn't give us any warning. Come on, Micah. I better not complain. But um, verse 9 says, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? That's speaking of what happens when Jerusalem uh, is overtaken. The king Zedekiah, captured by Nebuchadnezzar, has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. This is talking about the invasion of Jerusalem. It's going to happen 100, 150 years after the time of Micah. Or 100, about 100, something between 100 and 130 years. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs, for now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you will go. I mean, that kind of excites me. This is written about over 100 years before, and he's telling them, you guys are going to be exiled to Babylon. At the time of this writing, Babylon was a minor, very much of a minor world power. The Assyrians controlled the whole world. They were overrunning the whole world. And here Micah, who, by the way, also addresses the Assyrians at length when he's doing the near-term prophecy, but this medium-term prophecy, he says, you're all going to go to Babylon. Wow! He calls it. And it says, there you shall be delivered. Now, we know that's an interesting thought at the time. They're like, what does that mean? They're going to go to Babylon and be delivered. It's exactly what happened. They were safe in Babylon. Jeremiah says, you guys are going to Babylon. Cool out. Don't rebel. You'll be taken care of there. And they were so much that they didn't want to come back to Israel when they were told so, to do so 70 years after their exile into Babylon. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also, many nations have gathered against you. So, okay. So we go from Jerusalem right here. In this verse, we go to right here to the Battle of Armageddon. It's not easy to teach. teach Now, remember, Peter said, you know, the, the prophets didn't always understand that when they were prophesying of the future, they were just saying what God prophesied. They, and, and I likened it to, you know, Jesus' return. His birth was a near-term light. His return was a far-term light, but to them it just looks like one light. Now we're about to read in chapter 5 where he talks about Jesus' birth. Here he's talking about his return. Right here. His return. 
Now many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled. Now what is this about? Again, he's jumping to what is going to happen immediately prior to Christ's return. Many nations gather against, will gather against Israel at the time just prior to Jesus' return. And, and, and man, if you look at the isolation of Israel in the world, it's shocking. I, I looked, and again, I am not picking on the United Nations, and I really do believe they, they do a lot of good things, but when it comes to passing resolutions condemning countries, it's mind-boggling. The, just let me just sh- share a couple things with you. The General Assembly of the United Nations on a routine basis passes, from year to year, passes many resolutions against Israel. And, and, and oftentimes there'll be few, if any, against other member states. Let me give you a, a, a couple of other examples. The World Health Organization, which is the United Nations um, uh, organization for Health in, in 2005, it only passed one resolution condemning a country. It was Israel. Now, if they need to be condemned, let them be condemned. But health? You realize what's going on? I mean, some of us travel internationally. Of some of the, 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 the violations of human rights involving health in countries around the world, there's 190 other member states. Only one. The, similarly, the United Nations International Labor Organization at its annual 2005 conference in Geneva carried only one major country-specific report on its annual agenda, and of course it was Israel condemning them. Labor violations? And did they not understand what goes on in some of the countries in Asia? I mean, all you need to do is pick up a, 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 a newspaper To me, though, the the worst is the Human Rights Council, established in June 2006, designed to improve over the discredited commission that preceded it. First year, um, criticized, condemned, uh, passed 10 resolutions against Israel, not a single one for human rights violations against the uh, 191 other countries in the world. In the second year, nine resolutions against Israel, only one against any other uh, country. It was Myanmar. And, and even in that, and had some resolution pra- uh, praising the Sudan uh, for its cooperation in connection with all the, the human rights violations that were happening there. Uh, look, I, I'm not picking on them, but I'm just saying when we look around at what's going on and we read uh, around us and we read uh, this verse, many nat- nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled. Uh, it's, and let our eye look upon Zion. It says, let our eye look upon Zion. Um, I read, and I don't know if this is current, but um, I also read in the same article that the only permanent agenda item on the Human Rights Council, a permanent agenda item, is Israel. What? That's exactly what this says. Let our eye look upon Zion. That's what it says. Verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, and he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Now, I, not for a second am I saying uh, that there haven't been 
serious human rights violations involving Palestine by Israel. But it's just the, the, the preoccupation with Israel as opposed to everywhere else in the world is striking. Verse 13, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the earth. Speaking of what's going to happen at the battle of Armageddon. Now, I am going to do it. I'm going to make it. We're going to have time to pray, I promise. Verse 1 says, now gather your troops, O daughter of troops, He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, some believe that is a reference to what happened to Zedekiah, again, who was the king when Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem for the last time, wiped him out, wiped out the temple, destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple. He was certainly... Uh, beaten. His eyes were plucked out, actually. Others believe that this is a reference to none other than Jesus. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Certainly, we just went through the book of Luke and saw this happen to Jesus on the night he was arrested. Now, the strength of this argument is the next verse. One of the most well-known prophecies in the Old Testament, but you, Bethlehem, Apathra. There was actually two Bethlehems, and so he narrows it down to one. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you, you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting, a reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jews that are not Messianic Jews will argue about the deity of Christ. The Islam people, uh, in the Quran, it says, honor Jesus, follow Jesus, listen to what Jesus say, but they have this issue with his, uh, with his deity. Uh, this right here, clear reference to his deities, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Verse 3, a very difficult verse in terms of interpretation. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the, uh, of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So verse 3, let me just take a crack at it here. Commentators are mostly in one of two camps. Either this is a reference to the Virgin Mary, Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has been given birth. I personally think the second interpretation makes more sense. He's referring to when, therefore, he shall give them up. He's referring to when Jesus departed, he was crucified. Remember what he said 
on, on the, right before he came in Jerusalem, how he, he more or less gave Jerusalem over to the judgment that was coming their way in 70 AD. And then it says, until the time that she who is in labor has given birth is a reference to the rebirth of Israel. Everyone following me? Then the remnant of the brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So that's referring to Israel being reborn, the remnant uh, uh, gathering to Israel. And then verse 4 is, is chronologically to me that it makes much more sense because verse 4 is then talking about what happens in the middle millennial reign after Jesus' return. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Uh, verse 4, this is, it says, And he, Jesus, shall stand and feed. The word there for feed means ra, which is the same word, Hebrew word for shepherd. Jehovah ra, the Lord is our shepherd. He shall feed, he shall shepherd his flock. Verse 5, another hard verse. And this one shall be peace. So Jesus will be our peace. The Lord is not into peace violence and war. It breaks his heart. He shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land. Now that's, this is an odd verse here. What is this talking about? Has he jumped back to the, to the near term? When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight, eight princely uh, men, they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod and its entrances. And thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Now, some people think he's jumped back to the near term, but others think the Assyrian, particularly because of this obscure cryptic reference here, seven shepherds and eight princely men, uh, will be raised up against them. They think the, the Assyrian, the single here, is a reference to the Antichrist. The strength of that argument is verse 7. says, after the Assyrian, singular, is defeated, and he's defeated at Armageddon, or when uh, upon uh, at Jesus' return, verse 7, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of the peoples like a lion among beasts of the forest, like a young lion, flocks of sheep. Again, all a picture of the millennial reign. It's like a, also a picture of the Garden of Eden. We'll get a taste of what that was like when the, when Jesus comes to reign again. Who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver your hand, shall be lifted against your adversaries. And for the rest of the chapter here, it's just talking about how uh, the, the, the land is going to be purified. Your enemy shall be cut off, and it shall be on that day, says Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Meaning, Israel's no longer going to have to rely 
upon military might. I mean, they are one military force now. It's actually shocking. If you don't know, if you've been living in a cave and you don't know, they have nuclear weapons. Um, and they have an, a formidable military, uh, Israel does. God told Moses to tell the people before they went into the promised land, when you get a king, there's three things the king should not do. He should not multiply women. He now shall not multiply silver. He shall not multiply chariots or, or, or horses or mil the military prowess. And so in the millennial reign, it'll be like that. And I don't have to spend money, enormous percentage of GNPs on military strength. It will be uh, put to such better uses. Verse 11, I will cut the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no soothsayers, so, you know, no superstition in the land, no new age stuff. Your carved image I will cut off. Your sacred pillars from your midst you shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden image from your midst. Then I will destroy your cities and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. And so a reference to the millennial reign uh, to the rather to Armageddon, the final battle just before Jesus' return, and then just to the to to the peace that happens after. But again, what we have is Micah jumping from the present to the near term to the medium term, which is Jesus' birth, to the long term, which is Jesus' return. And so uh, these prophets. That's why they long to look, the, Peter says, they long to look into what we saw because even some of the things that they were saying, they didn't even understand. And Paul says to Timothy, through Jesus Christ, light and immortality came to the gospel. In other words, the Old Testament has become clear because Jesus came to the earth. It was taught for three years. I, I, what I would have done to be on that road to Emmaus where he taught through the Old Testament. And he brought a lot of this stuff to light. Okay. We did it, Andrew. And it's 739, and I'm going to call...